Well, this being a new year, and we always have hope for new beginnings, don't we? Very rarely do we say, oh, ho-hum, it's just another day, it's another month, another year. No, no, it's a new year. And given that, all of us as human beings, we, we mark time. We have anniversaries, we have birthdays. These are all rites of passage. And, and New Year's is really a rite of passage for us in how we live our life. And so I want to talk to you this morning about some, some things to focus on and some principles and truths, and really passions, if you will, for the new year. Let's forget what's behind, shall we? Let's just forget what's behind. New year, let's press on. Shall we press on? To lay hold of that which God has called us heavenward. So I want to talk to you this morning about being passionate Christians. Should we be passionate? Yes, we should. Yes, we should. And I want to start off by saying, what is God passionate for? What do you think God is passionate for? To answer that question, we want to look in the scriptures. So open your Bibles and turn on your appliances to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7. Now the context and the setting for this chapter, God has just redeemed Israel. He's brought them out of 400 years of slavery and oppression in Egypt. They were miserable. How many can identify with being miserable over something? Yeah, all of us at some point. These people were miserable for 400 years. They cried out to God. They cried out to God, and God sent them a deliverer. Who was the deliverer? Moses. And God led Moses to lead them out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. Now, he's got them in the desert. He's going to begin to train them and teach them and give them a brand new identity. They're not slaves anymore. They're free people. And their identity is to be found in their relationship with, guess who? Moses or God? God. And God's going to give them his word. He's going to teach them his laws. And as he does so, his laws, his Torah, he says, is the way to life. Not slavery, not bondage anymore. And their whole identity would be bound up with him as they understood and obeyed what he said. How many parents do we have? How many parents... You suppose your kids want to live a good life. You tell them if you want to live a life, a good life, and, 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 and live long, what should you do? Obey me, right? God says the same thing to his people Israel. I'm giving you a brand new identity, and this identity is characterized by the laws that reflect, in effect, God's character. So in Deuteronomy chapter 7, let's read with me, beginning at verse 6. For you are people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Is that not awesome? Of all the peoples on the face of the earth, he's chosen them to be his treasured possession. How many have heard the phrase, the chosen people? Referring typically to the Jews. What were they chosen for exactly? They were chosen fundamentally to be a reflection of God's nature and character to all the peoples around them. You and I, Peter says, are chosen for that same purpose. We're holy to God. We're chosen 
so we could be a light to all those people around us who don't yet know him. And secondly, they were chosen to be the very vehicle through which the Savior, the Messiah, would come into the world. They were chosen by God for those purposes. Now you would think when he says, I've chosen you, they would stand up and puff up their chest and say, oh, we're chosen ones. We're, we're so better than everybody else. Then he corrects their perception and he says in the verse, very next verse, verse 7, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you are more numerous than the other peoples for you are the fewest of all the people. You are a puny lot. He didn't choose you because you were so great. He didn't choose us because we're so great. He chose us simply because of his sovereign will. He set his affection in his heart on each one of us. You and I have no leg to stand on to say, look at me, aren't I great? God, God, should, God can use me. No, we humbly come to this table, gratefully come to this table and say, God, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Do I hear an amen? amen. Yes. He goes on and he says this. He says, because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to his forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. Does that sound like the Lord God is passionate for his people? Absolutely. In Luke's gospel, in the 15th chapter of Luke's gospel over in the New Testament, many of you recall the parable of the prodigal son. That parable could also be easily called the parable of the prodigal father. Prodigal coming from the word prodigious, which means ample or abundant. That son was prodigious in his foolishness, was he not? But the father was prodigious in his what? His faithfulness and his love. And so the son, we read, took his inheritance and he ran off. And he lost it all. Lived his life in dissipation. And when he was at his very lowest point, he realized that even the servants in his father's house had food to eat. He had nothing. He was eating the, the, the pods that the pigs would eat. He was so messed up. So he repents, he turns back to his house to, his, to return home, hoping just to be received and serve like one of the servants of his father's household. But look at what we read Jesus says in verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, the father was looking, looking, longing, passionate for this son. And when the son came home, the father wagged his finger at him and rebuked him for his foolishness. No, what did the father do? He welcomed him. He had a party for him. That foolish son. Man, we could hardly wait to wag our finger, couldn't we? No, the father was so rejoicing. He was passionate for his son. And that father is a picture of, of our God, our heavenly father, who is passionate for us. The angels in heaven were told rejoice when one of us repents. 
In the fifth chapter of the book of Romans in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul tells us, and I'll leave you to read the passage yourself. I'll summarize it for you real quickly. Jesus died for certain people. He died for good people. He died for faithful people. No, who did he die for? He died, we're told by Paul, for the ungodly. He died for sinners. He died for those who were his enemies. Wow! That's who we were. Ungodly means without God. Sinners, enemies of God. We hated God. And yet, it was while we're in that state, Jesus died for each one of us. Wow. Wow. So let me rehearse my question again. What is it exactly that God is passionate for? His people. He's passionate for his people. And in turn, if I can say this, what does God expect? What does God expect? How many, how many are married here? How many, how many are in a marriage relationship? How many would admit to being passionate for their spouse? Oh, fewer hands went up. <laughs> if you're passionate for your spouse, what would you expect? That your spouse be what? Passionate, passionate for you. If God is passionate for us, what does he expect? that we would be passionate for him and passionate for the things that he's passionate about. Does that make sense? Listen to Jesus' words recorded by Mark in Mark's gospel, chapter 12. He says, love the Lord your God with part of your heart. What is it? All your heart. Do we love him with all of our heart? No, we don't. We don't even come close. But that's what we aspire to. In this new year, I want to encourage all of us that we love him more and more and more of our heart. Because we realize that he loves us. He's passionate for us. You cannot get past the reality. He is so passionate that he sent and gave his very best for us on that cross. He didn't hold back. He didn't look around heaven and said, well, you know, what angel don't I need here? No, he, he turned to his son. He says, will you go for them? I'll go. Here I am, send me, I'll go. Wow. Love the Lord your God with all your heart in all your soul, in all your mind, in all your strength. Does that sound like passion to you? Every one of us, if you are a Christian, you aspire to that. Or you certainly ought to aspire to it. To be passionate for him and passionate for the things he's passionate about. And the second commandment is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. He presumes that we already love ourselves. Just love your neighbor as much as you already love yourself. If you look at the early church, the first century church, the prototype, if you will, for the church, 
We see people who are passionate about God and passionate about and for each other. Turn quickly with me to uh, the book of Acts, chapter 2. For many of you, this is uh, just kind of review, but it bears rehearsing, bears repeating. In chapter 2, begin at verse 42. Listen to how Luke describes those first century believers. Now remember, these people were Jews. They'd come out of a Jewish environment. They've come out of temple worship. They've come out of a sacrificial system. They've come out of legalism. They've come into a whole new life, a whole new existence. They were literally under the oppression of the religious leadership. And now they've come into a whole new world, a whole new environment. And Lucas says that they devoted themselves. Don't you love that word? Devoted. Does that sound like a passionate word? I'm devoted to you. Oh, that sounds marvelous. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They wanted to know what Jesus had to say. They realized and received Jesus as their Savior. They were committed. They wanted to be passionate for him because of what he had already done for them. They were devoted to what the apostles would teach them about this new life and about what Jesus said about it. They were devoted to the fellowship. They were of one mind, one heart. We'll read that again twice in these, in these chapters. These Christians were together and they were devoted. It wasn't one doing his thing and one doing that thing. They were all together. They were like-minded. They were devoted to the fellowship. They were devoted to the breaking of bread. In other words, they ate together. They had meals together. And at those meals, they also took communion together, much as we did already this morning. And they were devoted to prayer. They understood and they were learning the power of prayer. Today, most people don't think prayer is effective. It's just an empty exercise. I submit to you, prayer is invading the impossible. I submit to you, prayer is the most powerful way you can intervene in another person's life. And that intervention will happen in God's time. They were devoted to these things. And in that kind of environment, everyone was filled with what? They were filled with awe. They were filled with awe. This is a whole new life, whole new existence. I submit to you that there's not very many people coming to church anymore who are filled with awe. He goes on, he says, in that environment, many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the people, all the believers were together, had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to one another as they had need. Every day, he says, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Kind of sounds like the church today, doesn't it? But it should, huh? It should. We're, we're a couple of degrees out of balance, many Christians today. Go over to chapter 4, verse 35. I'm sorry, verse 23. 
No, I'm sorry, verse 32. Luke again, describing that early church. He says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. Another way of saying they were all together. They were one in heart and mind. That didn't mean that they, they marched lockstep behind some dictator. No, no, no. They understood. They, they knew what God wanted and they were committed to that. These people were passionate. Passionate for God and passionate for each other. No one claimed any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. Is that not a beautiful phrase? Much grace was upon them all. As stinky as the church can be sometimes, it's still the best thing going. We have no idea how much grace is upon us all. It's God's grace. It's nothing we deserve and nothing we've earned. It's all his grace. It's imperative that we be cognizant of that. He goes on and Luke says, there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Wow, these people, some people would sell their house. Or they had, they had income property, rental property, that they would sell it because they saw a need that needed to be met in the life of that church. Isn't that mind-blowing? Why? Because they, they were what? They were passionate for God, passionate for the things that God was passionate about. If you go over to chapter 5, I'm giving you the references in your notes, but I encourage you to read them later. But in chapter 5, you see the apostles themselves are suffering terrific persecution. They're thrown in prison. They're beaten because they're preaching about Jesus. They're passionate about Jesus. They will not be stopped. And when they get out of prison after they've been beaten, what do they do? They go suck their thumb. They complain and whine. Poor me. I'm going to call my lawyer. <laughs> no, what do they do? They rejoice. They count it a privilege to suffer for the name. Wow. What a congregation. What a group of people. What Christians. Passionate people. Would you agree? Wouldn't you love to be involved in a church like that? Yes. Well, in many ways, we are. I have good news for you. I believe that our church does resemble that first century church in many ways. And yet, at the same time, for some, there's still a disconnect. A disconnect between what they read and what they experience. For some, the Christian life isn't passionate. It isn't compelling. You have to sit and ask yourself, is my Christianity passionate? Is it compelling? Or is it just go through the motions, humdrum? It's just a spoke on the wheel. It's not the hub of the wheel of my life. Am I making sense? What made that early church compelling? What made that early church life-changing as we read well, if you study those passages and you dig deep into them, you begin to discover some things, things, things that I want to share with you this morning. 
You can surface read and miss them. But if you stop and you dig deep and you meditate and you pray and you say, God, open my understanding, show me the things that characterize these people in that first century church. He'll show you and open your understanding to some marvelous things. And I want to share some things that I've begun to understand again. The things that I want to tell you today are things that most of you have already heard. You've heard again and again and again. But they're now in a different context. And they bear repeating. They bear repeating. I want to describe these as seven core passions. Seven what? Core, core passions. These, are, these things have to be at the core of our life as Christians. If we are to be passionate about God and passionate about the things that he's passionate about, these passions, if you will, have to be part of the core of our life and our experience. The first one is worship. We would, we would assume worship, yes, of course, but let me characterize it as intimate worship. Intimate, personal worship. Every believer in that early church, we're told, every believer worshiped God every day, both in private and in the company of other believers. They met every day. And this intimate worship necessitated a commitment to acknowledge, first and foremost, God's majesty, his magnificence. You have to acknowledge him. He is God. He is creator. You stand in awe of him. The words we sing that are on the screen, they're on the screen not just to help you keep track of the words. They're on the screen so they enter your eye gate as well as your ear gate so that we can praise him and honor him and acknowledge his awesomeness. How many have ever seen some awesome scene of nature like the Grand Canyon stood at the very edge of the Grand Canyon. I understand they have it, and I haven't been on there, and I wouldn't go on it, but I understand they have a, a, a big plexiglass or glass thing you can go out on and actually be over the Grand Canyon. I about that, like, yeah, I'm not about that either. <laughs> <laughs> if I just watch that on TV, I get woozy. <laughs> I'm not a person for heights, let me tell you. But you stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon and it just takes your breath away. You go, oh, wow. You see a sunset and the mag majesty of the sunset and you just stand there and you have to say, wow. Amen. You see, that is the essence of worship. You're acknowledging that which is transcendent to you, that which is greater. You're standing in awe just of creation. Let alone the creator who made it all. Intimate worship. Intimate worship includes the acknowledgement and the expression of gratitude. Gratitude to him. Can we ever thank him enough? No. I'm always telling people, I said, you know, people say, Pastor, I, I just, I can't get to sleep. I can't get to sleep. Well, take a sleeping pill. No. No. You're awake for a reason. Not because you're anxious or fearful. You're awake for a reason. Your reason is to lay there on your bed and give him thanks. Praise his name. Do you know what, a, you know what a, a train of thought is? You think one thought and it leads to another one. That's what I do up here. I'll be saying something and get another thought. 
Can I go off on my tangents and keep you for a couple hours? <laughs> I'm known to do that, aren't I? I'll probably do it this morning. I'm doing it right now. <laughs> Whenever you see me on this side and I depart from my notes, that means we're in trouble. <laughs> a train of thought. When you start giving thanks and you think, God, what can I thank you for? Oh, I thank you for this. I thank you for that. And you see things start popping into your head. You start thanking him and thanking him and thanking him. And you start worshiping him. And it's an intimate worship that acknowledges his magnificence, acknowledges his goodness and his kindness and his grace to you. And pretty soon, before you know it, you're sawing logs and someone's elbowing you. <laughs> Not you, Alex. You're sleeping by yourself, buddy. <laughs> Alex is my brother and my friend, right? Amen. Okay. <laughs> Intimate worship includes the acknowledgement of his sovereignty, his power, his authority. It's not my life to live as I choose. I'm a slave of righteousness. I'm a slave, Paul tells me, of God. And I acknowledge that. Lord, not my will, but yours be done intimate. You can do that in the midst of the congregation. You can do it as you lay on your bed at night. You can do it as you're walking, as you're driving, as you're taking a moment. Intimate worship would include just very simply saying, God, I love you today. I love you today. I love you today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Intimate worship. You acknowledge him in all of his glory. You commit yourself to following him with dedication, to, to, to rest, to rest and enjoy the miracle of his love and, and being in relationship with him. Not to be anxious or fretful or worry or live in fear because you know who's in control. To be anxious about anything is to be in sin. It's to call God a liar. I don't really trust you. You don't really know or care. And yet his word tells me just the opposite, doesn't it? I don't have to be afraid of anything. I don't have to be anxious for anything. I refuse to be anxious for anything. I refuse. And you have to know in my life, there's lots of stuff that's impinging on my life and my thoughts. And I just say, speak to the hand. <laughs> you see, these things should be part and parcel of our experience of worship. Experience. Well, Pastor, we live by faith. Yes, we live by faith, but that faith has an effect on us spiritually and temporally. That early church those Christians, their weekly worship, sadly, is not always reflected in people's desire to worship with the body. Some people come once a month, maybe. I talked to some people this morning coming in. I greet you. Where's so-and-so? Oh, they're just tired today. 
tired. What if Jesus got tired and said, I don't want to go to the cross. I'm too tired today. <laughs> Somebody please help me on that. Do you know what it's like to be in his presence? To actually experience a connection with God? To have those aha moments? God is here. In our midst, the Bible tells us. When just two of us gather together in his name, he's in their midst. We've got four or five hundred people this morning. He's in our midst. Intimate worship. If you're going to be a passionate Christian in this new year. Let me take you a little step further. A second core passion. Faith-based conversations. What kind of conversations? Faith-based. Do we have conversations all the time with people? All the time. Are they necessarily faith-based or are they about the weather? About the weather, politics, this, that, and the other thing. We, we have sports, right? Forever marvel how easy it is to, to uh, default to talking about sports. Oh, did you see that game? Oh, did you see that game? Faith-based conversations. Just as Jesus is uncompromising in his pursuit of us, he expects us to be uncompromising as we share his love and grace with those who have not yet understood it or embraced it. Uncompromising. Is it natural? Is it a natural thing to talk about and to promote the things that, that excite us? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Things that excite us, we want to talk about. We want to share with other people. Oh, let me tell you about this. <laughs> Nothing should excite us more than the realization that God himself, the creator and most powerful being in existence, loves us and wants an intimate, personal relationship with each one of us. <gasps> Nothing should excite us more. Think about that. The God who created everything knows you, knows me, loves you, loves me, wants an intimate personal relationship with each one of us. Nothing should excite us more than that. But we get distracted, don't we? And he wants us to share with others that he loves them. He wants a relationship with them also. Those early Christians shared this wonderful good news. This is the good news. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe would not perish but have everlasting life. We are, we are conceived in sin. We're born in sin. We're born enemies of God. We're born objects of wrath. We are under God's wrath. God doesn't send people to hell. He is rescuing them from hell. And we get to play a role in that just by announcing some good news. That early church shared that good news. Every one of us have little spheres of influence, do we not? We have friends, relatives, neighbors, people we work with or go to school with. All of us have these little spheres of influence in our life. 
Because we're passionate for God and passionate for the things that he's passionate for, other people, we should be praying, Lord, show me. Show me which one of my neighbors now should I be praying for? Which one of my neighbors can I talk to? Which one of the people I work for? Which one of my relatives? My Uncle Billy, the least likely person. I'm going to pray for him, Lord. He come to saving knowledge of Jesus. All of us. We're going to revisit uh, this, ne this next year. We're going to revisit our 10 most wanted list. How many know that, what that is? 10 most wanted. We have this over the years. We keep rehearsing it. And it's simply a, a little card that's going to be in your bulletin. You write down the names of 10 people in your life who you're sure don't know Jesus. And we're going to begin to pray for those people. You're going to pray for them every day. We're going to pray for them in church. Years ago, we had a big fishing net, and we hung a rowboat, half a rowboat on that back wall. How many remember that? Half a rowboat and a fishing net from that, and we put in the bulletins little fishies. And you could write the name of a loved one or friend or neighbor or somebody on that, and we put those little fishies in the net. As evidence, we believed that God was going to move on their life. And literally hundreds of people got saved as a result of you guys or that congregation praying for those people and sharing good news with them. Does that sound exciting? Yes, absolutely. You say, how do I share? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not an evangelist. How do I share? Simply, simply. I describe it this way. Conversations that are low-key and yet high-impact. Low-key, high-impact. What do I mean by low-key? Let me give you an example. I go to the gym. I go to the, over in El Segundo. The, it's called the Bay Club now. It's been through a number of iterations. So I go and work out. A lot of people there know me. And, uh, you know, I was there yesterday morning. Oh, happy New Year, happy New Year. Yeah, what's new? What's new for the year? I said, you know what? Let me tell you what's new. God's mercy. <laughs> you have to love it. Low key. I told, I told a number of people, I said, they said, they said uh, what, what, what was your Christmas like? I said, it was great. Great. I said, you'd have heard my, Christian, my Christmas message that I preached. I preached on what? Anybody remember? On the manger. On the manger. Thank you, Lauren. Yeah. What's wrong with this picture, right? That baby lying in a manger. I promise you, low key. You don't have to beat people over the head with the Bible. You don't have to be a trained evangelist. You just have to have and be willing to have conversations. And you say, well, I, I wouldn't know what to say. Just start saying something. Right. And you'll get better at it. But those low-key conversations will have a high degree of impact on those lives you talk to. Those people, I promise you, will never forget you. And you can always go back and revisit them. I have people actually joking with me now. Oh, what'd you preach on this weekend, preacher? I said, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Miracles happen in an environment where Jesus is talked about. 
You see it reflected in both those passages in Acts. Miracles happen when people are passionate for God and when they're passionate for the things that God's passionate about. Miracles happen. Why? Because all those people were what? They were one mind and one heart. They were together. They were a force to be reckoned with. And in that environment, God's presence dwells mightily. Miracles happen. His spirit moves. You could be sitting in the congregation and because the church is one mind and one heart and because we're passionate for him, you could be sitting in church, you have cancer, all of a sudden, boom, something happens. You feel something and God heals you. Stuff happens. Stuff happens in the midst of God's people who love him and are worshiping him. Who are passionate for him. tragedy is that the typical churchgoer today will die without ever leading a single person to a knowledge of Jesus. Most Christians are spectators. Spectators, they're not participants. You guys are, are participants. You're not just simply spectators. Our church services are like halftime. You've been out on the field. You've been beat up, spit on, run over. Now you're here for the coach to cheer you up. Say, get back out there. Second half. We're going to be passionate this second half. We're going to come back. How many saw the TCU game against Oregon? Crazy. Wouldn't you have loved to have been in that locker room for that halftime talk? TCU is down what? 31 points at halftime. 31 to zip. They came back and won that game in three overtimes. <laughs> Greatest comeback ever, I think, in college football. That's like us. This is halftime. I'm revving you up to be passionate to go back out there in the field. I have really departed from my notes. I am so sorry. Yeah. I'm only on part, I'm, I'm on point three. Oh my gosh. Okay, I'm going to hurry. Here's your third, third passion core passion, intentional spiritual growth. What kind of spiritual growth? Intentional. intentional. I'm intentional about growing spiritually. I'm intentional about wanting to mature. I was never a reader my whole life. When I was in grade school, high school, you know, you had to do book reports and all that stuff. I would go to the library and find these obscure books and I'd read the back covers and I'd just make up stuff. When I became a believer, I became a reader. I saw all these people. I'd never owned a Bible. I saw all these people come to church with their Bibles, and their Bibles were open, and they were reading them. And I was in two Bible studies, and the people were actually reading their Bibles. I'm going, wow, does everybody do this? Yes, everybody does it. I'll do it too. I became a reader. I read voraciously now. I have books every place. 
I pick them up, I, I got a bookmark. I'm going to pick up and start reading it again. I got magazine articles. I got journal articles. I got this, that. I'm reading. Be why? Because I want to grow. I want to be informed. I want to know more about Jesus. I want to know more about the Bible. I want to know more about his will for my life. You must be intentional about your spiritual growth. The early church, these believers were intentional. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were intentional. They exhibited a remarkable attitude towards their life and towards other people. They acknowledged the presence and the, of, the, of the supernatural in their life every day. We live in a culture that's been so influenced by the Enlightenment back in the 1700s that we're, we're a scientific culture now. We're a, just a physical culture. It's hard for us to understand and relate to the supernatural, but we live in a supernatural arena where powers, good and bad, are fighting over us. We have an adversary, an enemy, the Bible says, the devil, who is our enemy, not God's enemy, he's our enemy. He's roaming about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may what? Devour. Stuff happens. Well, why this? It's just coincidence. No, no, no. There's something going on that you may not be aware of. You have to know and understand that you live in a spiritual, spiritual environment. We are first and foremost spiritual beings living in these temporal earth suits. We have spiritual antennae, the sense what's going on. We have the word of God to confirm it to us. Those early Christians placed faith at the center of their lives. We place faith at the center of our lives. And as they did, we derive our sense of meaning and purpose and direction from our relationship with God and his word. I don't consult the uninformed experts. I don't talk to anybody else except God in his word. I ask God, Lord, what is your will? I'm going to search your will on a matter until you reveal it to me. It's always interesting to listen to Christians talk. When I listen to Christians talk, I'm listening for one thing. I'm listening for a truly biblical worldview. In other words, a view of the world, a view of life, a view of existence that's based in truth, not in simple suppositions, not in theories. But what does the Bible have to say about life? It's fascinating when you hear people talk, and especially Christians. We live in a day, we live in an age, we live in a culture where people deny that there is any absolute moral truth. People say... Well, my truth is my truth. Your truth is your truth. You ever see that bumper sticker that says coexist? And it's got all those little symbols on it? It's maddening. <laughs> I want to scream, no! A biblical worldview says there is absolute moral truth. There is right and wrong. 
Today is all political correctness, isn't it? I, I can't digress. I, I want to, but I can't digress. The Bible is accurate in its teachings. Now, you and I would go, yeah, I, yeah. But you know how many people say, well, you know, I'm not so sure about the Bible. I'm not so sure. You know, after all, it's been translated, and it's, it's been this, and it's been that, and all these people have this different. The Bible is accurate in its, in its teachings. You read your Bible, I don't care what version, you pick it up and read it, and it says the same thing. It says the same thing. Who's Jesus? Ah, oh, he's a good teacher. He's a good man. No! Jesus is God in the flesh. Wasn't, is God in the flesh. And when he was here, he lived an absolute sinless life. So he could be the one final pure lamb of God that could take our sin upon himself and give us his righteousness. And Satan isn't just a symbol. <laughs> Satan is a real being. The absolute personification of the most vilest evil you could ever possibly imagine. Nothing is beneath Satan. A biblical worldview includes the reality that all believers are responsible for sharing their faith in Jesus Christ with others. We're responsible. We share our faith. What kind of conversation should we be having? Low key, high impact. Low key, high impact. Takes all the pressure. Oh, what you all about? I'm about Jesus. I'm a Jesus follower. What about you? Who do you follow? Oh, I follow Buddha. Ooh, I'm sorry. A biblical worldview says that the only means to salvation is by God's what? God's grace. And that grace comes to us by what? Faith in who? There's only one name under heaven given to men by which they must be saved. That name is Jesus. There is no other name. All religions don't lead to the same place. Well, they do except Christianity. They all lead to hell. A biblical worldview tells us that God, as the all-knowing and all-powerful creator of everything, visible and invisible, still is sovereignly ruling over every detail of his creation. Nothing escapes him. He's sovereign. That's why I don't have to be afraid. When the first bomb hits, I want it to hit right there. You can hardly wait. He's sovereign. He rules everything. There are so many Christians today who, in effect, possess a patchwork of theological views. But even then, they don't live their life based on even the patchwork of theological views. And although most of us would contend that the Bible is accurate in what it teaches... There are some who spend less time reading the Bible, not just studying it, just simply reading it, than they spend watching television or being online. I'm told that online is the phrase. 
And when asked to what constitutes success in life, few people today, few Christians today define success in spiritual terms. You don't hear, rarely hear, I'm growing spiritually. And they can identify how they're growing spiritually. I love my wife more than I ever thought I could. I honor my husband more than I ever thought I could. Wow. Guess how much I don't hear that from some. Wow. You are married to the shrew I'm married to. I'm only saying what some people really think. Most people, most professing Christians today, I think you'll find, describe outcomes in their life simply related to personal achievement. Look at me, aren't I great? I'm God's gift. Personal accomplishments, physical accomplishments, or some recent acquisition. Just bought my... Just bought my next apartment house. Aren't I great? whoop de doo Why don't you sell it and give the money to the poor? Well, no, because it took me so long to buy it. And when given the opportunity to state how they want to be known by others, few today mention descriptions that reflect their relationship with God. I told my wife, if I go first, I want this on my tombstone. He loved God. Loved God. Served God. Here's a fourth passion, core passion, servanthood. Should Christians be servants? Absolutely. How many know that love is more than a feeling? (laughs) It's more than a feeling. It is a tangible reality when it is shared. And when it's shared with another person through some act of selfless service. Love you, love you too, love you, love you more, love you more. (laughs) It's like fingernails on a blackboard. That early church we read about in the book of Acts, fostered the belief that serving other people was the best way. Notice this. Serving other people was the best way to demonstrate the example that Jesus had set for them. Like Jesus, they lived to serve rather than being served. Service. You can't wait. When you become a Christian, you can't wait for some church program to join to serve. There's an old saying all of us will recognize. Find a need and look around. What, it, that's, every entrepreneur understands that. You and I should be spiritual entrepreneurs. We should be looking around. What's a need? I'm going to go fill it. We have a family that came here from Vietnam. Little did they know they're going back. Most of you know our Vietnam outreach is extensive because they're uncovering need after need after need. And you guys believe in it so much that you support them. You pay for them to go and to meet these needs. We have a girl in Vietnam who is our connection. 
Find a need and fill it. We should all be Christians looking for a place and people to serve who are less fortunate and more needy than us. Would you agree? There's a fifth core passion. That's to do with resources God's entrusted to us and how we invest those resources. Our time, our energy, our talents, our skills, and the material resources he's given us in terms of monies. Because we own nothing in this life. Is that a, do you agree with me? Is that part of our worldview? Because we own nothing in this life, it is best to wisely invest whatever resources God has given to us as managers. Manage what he's entrusted to us, the true owner of all things. As we read again in the book of Acts in those passages, those first Christians defined their community through their sacrificial giving. It was sacrificial. They gave of everything they had. Luke says in verse, chapter 4, verse 32, he tells us they shared everything with those in need and that they used the variety of their resources at their disposal for the benefit of each other. Today, that's not always the case. George Barna is a, a church kind of a sociologist. He, he studies the church, he writes on the church, and he comes up with all these statistics and, and averages and such, and he's fairly prolific. According to George Barna, the average church Christian gives, in a typical year, 3% of their income. 3%. When in fact, the Bible tells us the minimum is what? 10%. Is that on the gross or the net? <laughs> yeah, it's right off the top, 10%. That's the minimum. That's the starting point. What are the two points of beginning that Satan fights a new believer over most? Baptism, Baptism and tithing. How many believers, professing believers, hold back on being baptized? For some reason, they make up reasons. Well, I'm not, I'm not comfortable, I'm afraid. And they don't get baptized. The same thing with tithing. 10% is the minimum. That's the starting point. Baptism is the starting point. Tithing is a starting point. And if Satan can trip us up at the starting point, what's he going to do for the rest of your Christian life? Am I making sense? We should steward that which God has entrusted to us. If you recall the parable of the stewards, two good stewards and one, what? Lazy, wicked steward. Here's a sixth core passion. Spiritual friendships. Spiritual friendships. The early church was all about relationships. It was all about family, all about relationships. And those friends of Jesus became friends with each other. And they reveled in their mutual love and commitment to Jesus whenever they got together. Just marvelous. You and I as Christians getting together, we get together in our small groups, our mini churches, our Bible studies, we get together, we're so excited, so excited to see each other. 
I do my Discover Hope class. I love that class. I love meeting people. I love spending eight to ten weeks with them. I love getting to know them. In the, in the weeks and months and years that will follow when I'll get to know them even better. You see, this is what we are. We evolve ourselves in spiritual friendships. And in those spiritual friendships, we not only provide encouragement for one another, but also we provide loving accountability for spiritual integrity. What do we provide? Loving accountability. For what purpose? Spiritual accountability. Should we be accountable? Should people be accountable? Yeah. Truth be known, most of us want to be left alone. We don't want to be accountable. We're very prideful still. We don't want anybody telling us. Why don't we rebuking us, anybody saying anything to us, calling us to account? Loving accountability. What kind of accountability? Loving accountability. Not critical, not beating each other up, not gossiping, not talking behind someone's back, not tearing them down. Loving accountability for spiritual integrity. That's what Christian friendships are about. If those things are not marking your life, you need to make some course corrections. If you find yourself talking about other people, gossiping about them, you need to zip it up and repent. If you don't have those relationships with other Christians in which there is spiritual accountability, seek them out. Seek them out. Seek them out. Best place to start is where? My class. <laughs> and then we graduate you to a mini church so you can develop those spiritual friendships. And lastly, family faith. Family faith. Christian families in the early church taught the ways of God in their homes every day. The home was the church. God's word was taught. Parents were expected to model a spirit-led lifestyle for their children to give them a path to run on. And families were to make their homes sanctuaries for God. And in fact, in a very real sense, the home was the early church, supplemented by the larger gatherings in the temple courts supplemented by meetings in other homes with other believers. But those things never supplanted the home as really the core church. We want our kids to be spiritually mature. We want our kids, but we can't relegate it simply to the institutional church. If you have children in the children's church, we can only impact your kids in that children's church for a short time, depending on how long I speak. If you have kids in a junior high or high school ministry, we can only impact your kids for a short time. But you have them all the time. You're the parents. You impact those kids' lives. You're the example to them. You want them to grow and to mature in Christ-likeness. I'm forever telling fathers, you are the priest of your house, not the tyrant You're the priest of your house. You're to lead gently but firmly. 
No, dear, this is where we're going. Right, Mike? This is where we're going. Good thing you have a, a godly woman that you're married to. How many married couples do we have? How many women are married here? How many know that your husband's ego is very fragile? Any smart woman knows that. Any smart woman looks at that guy and says, he needs my help. <laughs> True story. And this is what God says. He has made you to help. We need your help. We don't need you telling us how bad we are. The man was designed by God for a task. The woman was designed to help him fulfill his task. I'm here to help. I'm here to help. I'm here to help. Not to give pushback, pushback, pushback. What does this mean? <laughs> Zip it. Zip it. If your husband is off base, if he's trying to lead a family Bible study, if he goes home tonight and gets the family together and says, okay, Pastor Zach said we should pray together, we should read the Bible together, I want to read the Bible to you. Don't you go, oh, that was a terrible job. You say, that was great, honey. Wave his flag. You want to incentivize him to grow and mature as a man? Wave his flag. Well, if you were married to my husband, I don't know about that. <laughs> I promise you, there's something you can wave his flag about. There's something. The father is to lead. Not to say, dear, you do it and give it to the wife. No, no, the papa. If you have dinner together, breakfast together, whatever, before you get up and move from the table, the kids and all, you just say, you know what, we're going to have a time of Bible reading. We're just going to read the Bible. You don't have to preach. You don't have to teach. You don't have to lord it over them. You say, we're just going to read. We're just going to read. Just going to read. Wow. Low key, high impact. Low key, high impact. Say it with me. Low key, high impact. And pretty soon after a while, steady diet. Those kids are going to grow up thinking, wow, my dad always read the Bible to us as a family. What kind of, if you have a daughter, what kind of man you think she'll look for? Like dear old dad, who always read the Bible to us as a family. Who taught us to have a, a biblical worldview. Who demonstrated genuine faith. Am I making sense? Amen. You see, if your kids don't have a solid biblical worldview, if they're not grounded and you end up sending them off to college, chances are you've consigned them to the wasteland of our colleges. There are families in our own church today who are grieving over children that they sent away to school who those kids were not grounded in the world. They didn't have a biblical worldview. 
They didn't know exactly how to articulate what they believed and why they believed it. And so they were challenged at every point in these various college environments that are liberal and godless. And their faith was blown up. When my son went to college, he wanted to go off to college. I said, no! Can I live on campus? No! I am not going to feed my fool to the other fools and get a bigger fool in return. No, you're going to commute. And I'm going to stay with you in what you're learning. I want you to be able to tell me what your professors are saying. And he was a philosophy major. <laughs> he would come home and he'd say, you're not going to believe what they said today. So I taught him, I said, when you're sitting in class and they say something that's clearly foolishness, you just raise your hand. When they call on you, you just say this, why? 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 Why is that? And he found the other students going, wow, that was cool. And he got to be known as someone who knew what he was talking about to his professors. Yes. <laughs> but if I just said, oh, yeah, go to college, yeah. Never happened. If asked, I believe that most Christian parents today would say that they don't believe they're doing a good job at facilitating the spiritual growth and development of their children. They're not taking the time. They're not passionate about Christ in their own life, and so therefore they're not passionate about Christ in the life of their kids. They're at a loss of what to do. Beloved, it is the persistent exercise of these seven core passions that makes passionate Christians. And passionate Christians aren't perfect people. Passionate Christians may not always be the best example of genuine Christian behavior, but they are obsessed with becoming passionate Christians. We're in the race. We're not going to give up. One of the most important lessons I've learned in my life from studying Jesus and the words that he speaks is that he loves fruit. He loves fruit, not the kind you pick off trees but the kind that is evident in the life of a person whom he has changed. He made very clear that the proof of people's faith is not simply the information that they know or the religious gatherings they attend, but in the way they integrate what they know and believe into their everyday life and everyday practices. The hallmarks of the church that Jesus died for are clear. They're based in Scripture our profession of faith in Jesus must be supported by a lifestyle that provides irrefutable evidence of our complete devotion to him. If you were arrested today for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? That's a keeper, isn't it? The Lord encountered lots and lots of people while he was here on earth. He encountered lots and lots of people who could quote scripture, 
who could pretend that they knew and loved him. But his reaction to them was what? Show me the fruit. That was his reaction. Christians are Christ followers. What are we? Christ followers. Peter says he set an example for us to follow in his footsteps. The Apostle Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. If you're a Christian, you are a Christ follower. And we refuse to make excuses for our failings. No whining, no excuses. We refuse to make excuses. Instead, we address and overcome all of our inadequacies. Jesus did not die on the cross simply to fulfill church auditoriums. He didn't die on the cross to motivate people to implement innovative programs, at which we're very good at. He died because he loves us, and he wants everlasting relationship with us, and he expects that connection to be so all-consuming that we become wholly transformed. We become Jesus' clones. Isn't that what the Bible teaches? We're being conformed to his image more and more. Question. Is there anything in your life that gets in the way of your living like Jesus? If you can identify something, then you figure out how to eliminate that obstruction. Does your life or is your life so complicated that it's difficult for you to kind of juggle everything that's going on and remain Christ-like, if that's the case, then simplify your life. Yeah. Are you unable to find words that describe how you believe God has called you to know, love, and serve him? In other words, you don't know where you fit. You can't describe it. You don't have language. Then what you need to do is develop a new language. A new language that frees you to become what Jesus means for you to be while you help others to comprehend him and his grace and his mercy. You got to learn to talk. Got to learn to share. And if you never start, you never will. Is this society dragging you in the opposite direction from where Jesus calls you? If that's the case, then you must acknowledge that your life is part of a spiritual warfare that's going on. And you must declare the side you're on. As for me and my household, we will what? Serve the Lord. You must make that decision today. Passionate about it. Admit that you're better off fighting the good fight of faith and maybe suffering on this earth as a result of it for the cause of Christ. You're better off than gaining the world but losing your soul for the balance of eternity. We live our lives in the context of warfare. We're not here to be comfortable. We're here to be faithful. We're here to acknowledge our God and to tell others good news. I have good news for you. Every breath that you and I take, you have to view it as an act of war. You're fighting for your spouse in prayer. You're fighting for your kids in prayer. You're fighting for your neighbors in prayer. You're seeking God's face. You're saying, God, help them, help them. Your will be done in their life. You intercede. 
and understanding that, that every time you do that, you're engaging the war. And that demands a single-minded commitment and a disregard for the criticisms of those who lack the same dedication that you have. You and I answer to one commander-in-chief, only one. And you and I will also give an explanation for our life, won't we? We'll give an explanation for our choices one day. Do whatever you have to do to prove that you fear God, that you love God, and that you serve him, and that you live only for him. Beloved, that is the commitment of a true follower of Jesus, a truly passionate Christian. And I want to conclude with these words from the Apostle Paul. Philippians chapter 3, he says, forgetting what is behind. What is it? Forgetting. forgetting what is behind. I can't do anything about that. Forget what's behind. Now, today, this new year, January 3rd already. Oh, my gosh. Forgetting what is behind, straining toward what is ahead. And what's ahead? A more faithful passionate expression of our faith. Amen? Amen? Straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Beloved, let us press on. Let us press on to a more passionate Christianity in the year 2016. Whoa! Amen? Oh, you've been very patient and very gracious to me. Thank you. Although I did go off the rails a couple times. Let's pray. God, you know the very meditation of our hearts. Lord, you know what we've been thinking. You know the issues of our lives. You desire us. You expect us. As your passion for us that we grow in our passion for you and for that which you're passionate about. We ask you to help us, O oh God. You've given us a track to run on this morning. Seven core passions that we can explore, we can engage, embrace, and practice. And as we do so, we find ourselves becoming more and more passionate for you, for that which you're passionate for. Thank you, Father. Have your way in our life. Keep your heads bowed for just another minute or two.